I have a friend, Olaf Ehrenschwart, a Swede by birth, who yet by reason of a strange and melancholy mischance of his early boyhood, has thrown his lot with that of the New World. It is a curious story of a headstrong boy and a proud and relentless family, the details do not matter here, but they are sufficient to weave a web of romance around the tall, yellow-bearded man with the sad eyes and the voice that gives itself perfectly to plaintive little Swedish songs remembered out of childhood. In the winter evenings we play chess together, he and I, and after some close, fierce battle has been fought to a finish, usually with my own defeat, we fill our pipes again, and Aaron Schwad tells me stories of the far, half-remembered days in the fatherland before he went to sea. Stories that grow very strange and incredible as the night deepens and the fire falls together. But stories that, nevertheless, I fully believe. HPPodcraft.com That is the opening paragraph from Ralph Adams Cram's The Dead Valley. And you're listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at HPPodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And our reader we heard in the opening there is a friend of the show, first-time reader, Eric Hale. You know, he's a friend to all mankind, really. I've heard that about him. Uh, he wanted me to mention that if you're looking for a voice actor or reader and you like what you heard there, go ahead and hit us up here at the show and we'll put you in contact with Eric, because I think he did a pretty cool job there. Yeah, really outstanding, and it felt good. <laughs> it was It was a good experience. So this story is told by an unnamed narrator who mm-hmm. knew this Swedish guy, Olaf, Mm-hmm. who is now an adult. But the tale that he tells, it happened when he was 12 years old. And I right. think this is one of the first times that we've had a story where we've got a child protagonist. I really like that. Yeah, you know, you're right. I guess, I think when we did the Lovecraft Juvenalia. Well, yeah. <laughs> wasn't there like a little boy and his sister? Uh, yeah, but that, I don't count that. <laughs> yeah, no, and you shouldn't, and you shouldn't. This is the only, maybe one of the first stories written by an adult that uh, right. featured a child. But you're totally right. I mean, it's a great, you know, my, my sister Julie's been visiting me all week. Oh, yeah. It's been a long time since it's just been the two of us. You know, we both have our families and our spouses. And, but she's been visiting. We've been spending a lot of time just, you know, we had we grew up together and it was really just kind of us against the world. But a lot of the things that we're reminiscing about is, you know, being scared to death when we were around the age of the characters in this oh, right, yeah. story. I mean, the world is just so much spookier. You just have experiences that you don't have access to as an adult anymore when you're that age. So it's a great perspective to get in a, in a horror story. Well, you're just also really naive. Yeah. You just don't know things. I remember thinking when I was 12 and somebody would say, oh, you know, witches aren't real supposedly, but then here are these old accounts of actual witches that did witch things, and you're like, oh my god, witches are actually real? I've been lied to my whole life? <laughs> and you believe those yeah, things, and you sure. get really scared, or or ghosts, or whatever, and you just didn't have that, the adult process of being able to filter out BS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and totally. You would just you just accept it. So you're really vulnerable at that point in your life, because especially you're just kind of starting to ease into adulthood. So you're getting more and more responsibilities, yet you're still really not that savvy. Yeah. And you haven't seen the breadth of the world. And when we were talking about the Ambrose Beer story last week, we were talking about that formative experience of everybody seeing a haunted house. Part of that, though, is just you may have been told that ghosts aren't real or that the supernatural, but you haven't seen enough for it to be completely disproved. You know, mm-hmm. so I still suspected that in the ravine behind my house, there were some there were some things down there. <laughs> right. I don't know. You know, there's some chupacabra kind of stuff. I was just pretty sure that was true. And maybe everybody else didn't know it yet. Yeah. But so, yeah, great that the protagonist is 12. And this happened back. The story that he tells over the fire 
is something mm-hmm. that happened to him before he came to America. Right. So this all takes place in Sweden. These, mm-hmm. This town that he mentions, uh, Engelholm, that's a real place. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how accurate it is, too. It's in southern Sweden. So the story is about Olaf when he was a kid and his buddy Nils. And they were both 12 and they were best friends. And he just he says at, they were best friends at that point in their life and at that age and how when you're 12, you can really be best friends and you do yeah. everything together. Yeah, you, you have those friends. I mean, I remember being around that age and you leave. I would leave the house in the morning and go meet one of my buddies and then we would be gone until the sun went down just right. doing whatever. And so this is the relationship that yeah. they have. And uh, once a week, there is a market day in right. uh, somewhere nearby, Engelholm. And yeah. so Nils and, and Olaf would always go there to see the strange sights that the market gathered from everywhere around yeah, sure. the surrounding country. They go out there one day and there's an old man from Elfborg who's brought a little dog to sell. And they just fall in love with this dog. They want the dog so bad, but they don't have enough money. And they beg the old man. They go, we can get the money. We can get it together. But we promise not to sell the dog. And we'll be here next week with the money. And the guy right. says, yeah, sure. Okay, sure. We'll, I'll do it. Right. But, of course, the kids, <laughs> being 12, they freak out. And they think that he's not going to do it. So they get the money together. And then they convince their parents that they want to go to where this man lives mm-hmm. the next day and buy the dog from him. Yeah, they don't trust that he's going to hang on to it, even though he tells them that he will. The parents made arrangements for them to stay at Nils' aunt's house. Yeah, I love the setup there. I'm sorry, but I, the, uh, it's there's a phrase that says, soon after, you know, because they say, can we get the money? Can we go over there? Mm-hmm. It says, soon after sunrise, we were on our way after having received minute instructions as to just what we should do in all possible and impossible circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a great phrase to characterize, you know, when parents are concerned about you taking a trip when you're that age. Right. They can really paint some insane scenarios that you might have to react to, you know. <laughs> they give them guns also is another yeah. thing on their trip. But I guess this is a much earlier. This is probably in the late 1800s, the story. Well, this I, I think this came out in 1895 as part of a collection. I don't know if it was published elsewhere beforehand. I got the sense, especially the fact that these kids are going to go buy this dog, that it's it's really in a uh, hunting village. You know, it's agrarian. And, and these are kids. It says later in the story, they've hunted all up and down. Yeah. They've shot everything everywhere around this place. So, <laughs> having a, you know, they probably had rifles in their hands since they could pull a trigger. So They made plans to stay with Nil's aunt. Right. And it's the... This town, Hallsburg, is far enough away that it takes all day to get there. So the instructions for they get from their mom, they leave early in the morning. They get to Hallsburg, no problem. Stay with the aunt. Everything's fine. And then they're supposed to leave early in the morning so they can get back before nightfall. Right. But <laughs> however, they end up doing a little dicking around. Yeah, I know. And the next morning and they get up and they find a shooting range. And <laughs> this is what it says about the shooting range. Uh, where it had the most attractive pasteboard pigs uh, were sliding slowly through painted foliage, serving so as beautiful marks. And so that was it. They they went to this shooting range all morning and they didn't leave until afternoon. So there was yeah. no way in hell they were going to get back before the sun went down. And that, that seems just, so realistic, too. I mean, I remember losing track of time like that. I was thinking about that. Just that seems like exactly the type of thing a 12 year old would do. Mm-hmm. Where they're just like, you know, they're almost getting responsibility, but they still make these really dumb choices that if they yeah. just thought about it just a little bit, that like, oh, right, that's why I'm supposed to leave on time because it's mm-hmm. really in my own best interest. But then they just kind of forget about it. Yeah. I remember being a kid doing t- stupid stuff like that all the time where you just you just forget. Like, mm-hmm. it's not even out of any maliciousness. 
or just like, oh, screw my parents. I'm not going to do that. You just kind of forget you're supposed to think about these things and be responsible for them. Oh, yeah. And it's the minute you get outside, it just everything goes out of your head. And, you know, it happened. I walked home from school. Most of the time, it was a predictable amount of time before I got home. But I remember some days I'd be walking and I'd think, I wonder what's in their backyard, you know? And I'd just walk off and be looking around and goofing with stuff. And then I'd come home something like an hour late. My parents would be worried sick. Oh, yeah, I know. Where have you been? Oh, I don't know. You know, and I really wouldn't know. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I remember. Oh, man, I just had a flashback. It was when Return of the Jedi came out. And I was at school. I can't believe I did this. Return of the Jedi came out. My friend Brandon's dad was going to take him and and said, hey, do you want to go see Return of the Jedi with me? And mm-hmm. I said, heck yeah, I want to go see it. And he goes, okay, my dad's going to take us after school. And I said, okay, great. I didn't ask my parents. <laughs> I just, I just somehow in my young head, I just thought, well, oh, okay, well, if his dad's going to take us, then everything's fine. I didn't, yeah. It just didn't occur to me that I should tell my parents <laughs> that I was going to do that. And of course, they freaked out and they were worried sick. Oh. And yeah, kids. Yeah, good luck with that, Chris. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> this will be uh, revisited oh, upon yeah. you. These kids, so they get, they get such a late start at leaving from that part that they, they it's, night comes down pretty quick on them. They hurry, but it it doesn't do them any good. And they've got the puppy. They bought the puppy. They notice at this point, after the sun goes down, that the, that the woods gets really, really quiet, like crazy quiet. No wind, no creatures or bugs, not even like leaves rustling or yeah. anything like that. Just totally quiet. There's no wind, nothing. Yeah, It's still. And it freaks them out because it is so unnatural. This was the first inkling I got that this was going to be a really good, weird tale yeah i think we've read some other stories where this type of thing has happened but just a few paragraphs where he describes the sound getting sucked out of the environment and the way the kids without knowing what was happening start getting you know i could hear the blood beat through my veins yeah the only thing i could hear was that grass under our feet crunching and the way the air was stagnant and dead and i think he oh i love he says the atmosphere seemed to lie upon the body like the weight of sea on a diver who has ventured too far into its awful depths yeah outstanding and i guess that's one of those things too where you can't put your finger on what's wrong i mean you might recognize look there should always at least be the sounds of insects Mm -hmm. and you can say well there's not right now but it's nothing you can run from. It's nothing that no. you can, you don't know the cause of it. And you can't necessarily say that it's unnatural because maybe this is just a place where animals don't go or whatever, you know, but, but it's, it's horrifying. And the worst part, of course, is that the dog, the, the puppy that they've got with them is, they have to drag it along at this point. It's scared and they're scared and everybody, they just don't know what to do. And it, you're like, you said, there's, what are you going to do? You can't run from nothingness. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, why is this happening there's always noise, especially in nature. You can always hear the leaves. How is this happening? This doesn't make any sense. Great, weird tool. Like it's so, mm-hmm. oh, it's so good. It's so good. But then something does happen. This horrible sound. In the depth of the silence came a cry, beginning as a low, sorrowful moan, rising to a tremulous shriek, culminating in a yell that seemed to tear the night in sunder and rend the world as by a cataclysm. So fearful was it that I could not believe it had actual existence. In past previous experience, the powers of belief, and for a moment I thought it the result of my own animal terror, an hallucination born of tottering reason. 
<laughs> so they've 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 set the stage, and just this one thing happens. This unnatural stillness and quietness, and then through that, you get this this shriek, this cry, this moan. That's brilliant. And then, of course, it scares the crap out of them. They just run. They don't know where they're going. Yeah, he grabs the dog, and they get they just take off in any direction. And when they were running, they kind of run up a hill, and then they run down a hill a bit, and they get to this place where they see a valley. And in mm. this valley, there's this lake of fog. Like, that's mm. the only way to really describe it. The, it kind of glows slightly from the moonlight, but it, the fog is so dense that it almost looks like it could hold weight, that they could walk on it. Yeah, They're freaked about this mist because it, again, seems really unnatural, but that is the only way to get home. They have to go through it. To- this valley is a couple of miles across or something like that. I mean, it's, it's very, very big. It's too big for them to go around, so they just know that they have to go through it, and they're still mm-hmm. in this totally quiet forest. Olaf dips his toe kind of in the fog, kind of begins to step into it, and he does this crazy chill shoots through his body, and then the shriek happens again. And this time, they just, they don't run into the fog. They run back up the hill and away. I think they, yeah, they try and skirt the whole thing. But you know, the the detail I loved there was when he puts his foot in and there's the chill and then the cry. It says, far out across the damnable sea, I saw the cold fog lift like a water spout and toss itself high in writhing convolutions towards the sky. It was such a strong visual. Yeah. And very Lovecraftian, and oh man, I'm, I that just really hooked me there. Yeah, it's, I could it's, see it. It's it's really good, and again, perfectly weird because you know there's no monster, there's no, it's just sort of mm-hmm. these natural phenomena that's happening. I mean, there's the shriek. You don't know what that is. We don't get any real answers from. I mean, we'll get some more insight as the story goes on, but really, it's you don't get much, man. It, you it's, don't. It's really outstanding. Well, they. they take off, like I said. Yeah, along the the margin of the Dead Valley. It was a race for life that we knew. How we kept it up, I cannot understand, but we did. And at last we saw the white sea fall behind us as we staggered up the end of the valley, and then down into a region that we knew, and so into the old path. The last thing I remember was hearing a strange voice stammer brokenly. The dog is dead. And then... The whole world turned around twice, slowly and resistlessly, and consciousness went out with the crash. So they they pass out, or at least Olaf does. Now, it picks up here. He says that Olaf comes to three weeks later. Yeah. In his own bed. Once again, I find that Lovecraft was not as, like, his fainting spells were a little more minimal than some of these people who influenced them because this fainting spell lasts three weeks. Three weeks this guy was out. <laughs> this kid, I should say. He, when he comes to, his mom's there and she's like, oh gosh, it's so good that you're you're finally, you had some kind of fever. We found you in bed. You somehow made it home and got into your, in your own bed mm-hmm. and uh, you had this fever and then the fever became brain fever mm-hmm. and uh, we, we were worried sick about you what happened and he's like where's nils what happened to him and she's like he same thing you know he had this fever not as bad as you he's fine he's up and about she brings nils in and he says oh my god nils all this crazy stuff that happened and nils is like i don't know what you're talking about i don't remember any of that yeah what do you mean you don't remember any of that and he he knows that nils isn't lying he just doesn't remember it's like he he erased it from his memory yeah but he doesn't think that he imagined it because both of them getting brain fever. I mean, there's no yeah. other reason. It had to be because that lake of fog was real. 
Yeah. It's so boggling to him that Nils is completely, it's completely gone from his brain. He's not faking it. Yeah. So Olaf has to find out what really happened. It takes him a while to get back up on his feet. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a few weeks go by and he's ready to investigate this thing that he calls Death Valley. He goes this time very, very cleverly during the day <laughs> and he's able yes. to, to figure out his way back there. And he finds the corpse of the rotting dog, the rotting puppy. And yeah. he was feeling pretty confident about things. But when he saw that that dead puppy, he was like, oh, man, this that happened. Like everything I could remember, mm-hmm. I'm sure of it. But it's day and there's noise and there's birds and there's leaves and wind. And he takes comfort in that and he keeps pushing on. I just want to point out, we, we haven't talked about the author very much. And I, neither of us know much about him, Cram. But uh, the sentence where he runs into the the corpse of the puppy... It's everything that fiction should be. You know, just stating that I ran into the corpse of the puppy, that would that's one way to go about it. But the way he writes it, he says, A swarm of flies sung into the air around me, and looking down I saw the matted fleece with the poor little bones thrusting through of the dog we had bought in Halsburg. And it's got it it uses all of your senses, you know, you see the swarm of flies, you hear them. Uh-huh. He characterizes the little bones as being poor little bones to give you an emotional feeling. Uh-huh. I really felt, and I didn't. And when I read this, certainly I didn't know anything about the author. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, this guy's got to be some master writer, somebody who's published a lot that I just somehow never heard of because he's really. I mean, that that seems to me like somebody who really knows their business. We'll talk about him after we finish up there. But I just, man, I just, I think his construction of sentences and the way he put the pace of this together and everything was so good. Yeah. So he gets his confidence back, even though the dog chilled him a little bit, and he goes to the Dead Valley, mm-hmm. and there it is. But there's, the fog's not in it. There's no mist. No, not at all. But it's sort of stratted, which is mm-hmm. really bizarre. So up up high, higher in the valley, it's kind of green. And then mm-hmm. as it goes lower, it becomes this ashy brown and then white and then nothing. Just earth and rock and dirt at the bottom. Well, not quite nothing. There's like one – there's something in there. Yeah, you're right. There's one lone dead tree mm-hmm. and he feels this – curious compulsion to go check out this tree. Like he really needs to get closer to it. Now, from where, when he can see it, it's about a mile and a half off from where mm-hmm. he is. So it's a long walk. So he has to be pretty committed to, to checking out this tree. Now, when he gets closer, he notices, notices that there's a whiteness at the base of this tree. All around the roots and barkless trunk was heaped a wilderness of little bones. Tiny skulls of rodents and of birds, thousands of them, rising about the dead tree and streaming off for several yards in all directions until the dreadful pile ended in isolated skulls and scattered skeletons. Here and there a larger bone appeared, the thigh of a sheep, the hooves of a horse, and to one side, grinning slowly, a human skull. I stood quite still, staring with all my eyes when Suddenly the dense silence was broken by a faint, forlorn cry high over my head. I looked up and saw a great falcon turning and sailing downward just over the tree, and a moment more she fell motionless on the bleaching bones. So this thing is some kind of death beacon, you know, anything that crosses paths over it falls and dies. Yeah, and this is during the day, too. So obviously it grows in some kind of power when night hits. Now, this freaks him out to the point that he just doesn't move and is horrified by what he sees and the kind of the implication of it. 
And he realizes that he's about a mile and a half away from the edge of the valley and that it's getting dark. He starts to run, but he says, um, my feet seem clogged like as in a nightmare. I could hardly drag them over the barren earth. And mm-hmm. he felt the slow chill creeping through him. And that's, you know, it's like almost like when he says a nightmare where you're trying to run, but it's hard to run and you're not getting the traction that you need or there's something yeah. pulling you back. And I was like, oh, man, I know that feeling. It's yeah, such good writing. Well, just the, the look at look at what he's created here. It's the minute we see the bird fall over the tree, we know that's the source of it. Yeah. For whatever reasons and the bones and the fact that he finds a human skeleton. Yeah. I mean, that's the uh, the classic desert. I, th- I think they even do that in, you know, National Lampoon's Vacation <laughs> where, you know, Clark Griswold's going through the desert trying to find help. And then he falls and sees the, the skeleton in the <laughs> in the sand and starts screaming. But that's that, you know, trope. It's animal skeletons, animal skeletons. And then a human. No, you know, right. that happens to him. But we know that that's the source of the evil. And then the tendrils of the fog start rolling out from it. And engulfing the valley, like this is its home, you know, it's like the den of a, a giant spider or a, this is the monster's lair that he's in the heart of right now. Right. Well, there's like pools of fog that begin to form on the mm-hmm. ground. And as he's trying to run to get back to the valley and you can see, you know, he, he's aiming at the the higher parts of the valley, which are orange because the sun's going down. So he can see those, but he's in the kind of the darker region of the valley. So he's just running with all of his might to try and get to that upper part. And as I fought my way off from the tree, the horror grew until at last I thought I was going to die. The silence pursued me like dumb ghosts. The still air held my breath. The hellish fog caught at my feet like cold hands. But I won, though not a moment too soon. As I crawled on my hands and knees up the brown slope, I heard far away and high in the air the cry that already had almost bereft me of reason. It was faint and vague, but unmistakable in its horrible intensity. I glanced behind. The fog was dense and pallid, heaving ondulously up the brown slope. The sky was gold under the setting sun, but below was the ashy gray of death. I stood for a moment on the brink of this sea of hell, and then leapt down the slope. The sunset opened before me, the night closed behind, and as I crawled home weak and tired, darkness shut down on the dead valley. That's the end of the story. That's the end. What a winner. In our suitable surroundings conversation, I gotta say, I read this in bed in the morning. I read it in bed at night. Still, Still got me. Yeah, sun streaming through the window. It's a very powerful, and and you know, like you said, man, this guy is a really talented writer. And you would think, oh, he must do this professionally, like as in he's he's a writer. That's what he does. This is his profession, his chosen vocation mm-hmm. that he is going to excel at. And so I look him up on on Wikipedia just to kind of see, hey, what did what did this guy do? And I find this Ralph Adams Cram, who I can't find the writer. All I can find is this architect guy. That designed all this neo-Gothic stuff. Lots of amazing buildings. I mean, beautiful buildings. I go, okay, that's great. That's great. Where's the author? Where's the author? And then I notice at the very bottom, (laughs) it said, oh, he also wrote weird fiction and Lovecraft mentioned him in uh, Supernatural Horde literature. And I was like, what? Yeah. Lovecraft wrote, in the Dead Valley, the eminent architect and medievalist Ralph Adams Cram achieves a memorably potent degree of vague regional horror through subtleties of atmosphere and description. So he's not a professional writer. This was a hobby for him. Yeah. And and then I, of course, started looking through his works. And, you know, he, he 
he designed a church on Michigan Avenue in Chicago that I used to see all the time when I was working around. Yeah. So I'm actually familiar with his work, too. Dozens of buildings, uh, some in Pennsylvania and New York, all over the, the U.S. I mean, very accomplished, and the buildings are amazing. Yeah, he designed the military, or his firm did, the, the Military Academy at West Point, and, and yeah. he was, he's mostly associated with Princeton up there in New Jersey. He yep. designed a huge part of their campus and buildings there. I mean, he's a big deal. He's like up there with Frank Lloyd Wright almost, you know, as somebody who both worked in the... He designed a lot of churches, and he was a big believer in the in the Gothic revival. But he also yeah. did modernist designs and secular architecture as well. That's that's amazing. And I read this, and I thought to myself, "What a dick!" <laughs> I know. Not only is he like this outstanding writer, which is what is important to me, uh, he is this guy that designed these amazing buildings, and yeah. that was what he was really good at. And this writing thing, I just happen to be really awesome at that too. Yeah, he probably had a super hot wife. <laughs> he had kids that were really cool and smart and never gotten in any trouble. Not kids that would go to Return of the Jedi and not tell their nope. mom and dad that they're going. His kids were obedient, pleasant. <laughs> what a jerk. I like him so much that even at the beginning of the show when I thought about making a Ralph Cramden joke, I didn't do it. Because I <laughs> I wanted to make sure I, I got his name across without uh, sullying it with a sitcom character. You know, this is a great story and I I got to read more of his stuff if, it, if it's anything like this. Well, so far I think the rule is if the story starts with the dead... You know, if it's the dead something, then it's going to end up being a winner because the dead smile was another one that we did. That's that right. I, that snuck up on me and I'd never heard of before. Gosh, this is I, I would definitely uh, trumpet this one as a perfect example. I mean, perfect example of weird fiction. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, what do you think is going on? God, I don't I, I, I don't know. I, I would say maybe there is some kind of primordial spirit or entity or something mm -hmm. that exists in that tree and it feeds on the life that's in that area and that's why it was so quiet is because it just sucked the life force out of it and I don't know what that screech maybe the screech is the sound of its spirit or of its or is it the sound of the dead person you know the guy who died there it's haunting could that be. area or maybe the animals or yeah so I, I don't know and that's what's great about it but see that's funny when you say that because the lack of sound you could attribute to the fact that everything dies around it but you, I think it, the sound of leaves and yeah, no, that doesn't make any sense. Those got sucked out of the world too. You yeah, know? it's it's outstanding because I don't really have a good explanation for it. And man, you know that that weird fiction has succeeded when I can't even come up with a you know half-assed television <laughs> scientist explanation for things. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this is sort of like uh, I remember when I saw the Lord of the Rings films, uh -huh. and I said, these you know these movies are good because. There was a huge section of the two towers where there were trees walking around and I wasn't making fun of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's something about that that's so stupid. And yeah. yet somehow I thought it was perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Same thing in this story where the bad guy's a tree <laughs> in the middle of a, you know. Right. And an empty swimming pool essentially. And and, and it, I, I was horrified. Yeah. It's just a dead tree. It scared the heck out of me. I, and again, that man, this would be a really, I keep thinking cinematically, but I saw everything in my head so well. Mm, and it was just yeah. to think to, you know, because sound design is such an important thing in mm -hmm. films that the playing with the sound design of a movie like this, where you slowly start pulling elements out and it mm -hmm. just gets to that point where you can just hear them breathing and just, oh, it would be, it would be genius. Yeah. I mean, they've uh, they've done so many uh, so much research into how sound design is so important in films, where they'll have an audience, a test audience, and they will 
start messing with the image and that that doesn't bother people. People will just kind of just, right. they accept it. But when the sound starts going off for some reason, you can see people get agitated in their seats. They start looking around like, hey, what's going on? What's the problem? What's the problem? And it's so important. And that is something that, that Cram really latches onto and uses the, the whole idea of sound. Oh, it's just so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, I think the tree, which is dead itself. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we're dealing with, I shouldn't joke and say the monster's a tree. Really, it's just the forces of death. The sound is just vibrations in the environment. It, it stinks of life, so, sound, you know. It, yeah. it, mm-hmm. Without some kind of life around and, and living atmosphere, it's you can't have it. And so just the fact that everything drops out there, it's the strongest representation of death that you can have. Yeah, Really incredible, and I'm, I'm glad... You know, just pick this out of the hat, basically. But Lovecraft didn't steer us wrong this time. It's no, really he did one. not. He did not. So what are we doing next week? Well, next we're going to do another kind of surroundings, environmental, uh, at least it's a title because I haven't read right. the story yet. But it's uh, another Maupassant story. It's called On the River. Ah, uh, Guy. Guy de Maupassant. On the River. Don't know much about it, but uh, Lovecraft likes this one. And I actually have heard some other good things about it. So I'm looking forward to reading. Uh, I want to once again thank our reader this week, Eric Hale. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you. Uh, great stuff and really got across the, the atmosphere that we've been talking about. It. So thank you for thank you for contributing to the show this week. Well, I want to thank uh, my co-host, Chad Feinfer, for doing an outstanding job this week. Wow. Thanks, man. Well, thank you for for uh, for hosting this show with me. <laughs> That's it. I mean, you, oh, I'm sorry. You did a good job, too. I tried. I really tried hard on this episode. I, hopefully... I could tell you. I could tell you were yeah. trying. Okay. Good. A for effort. Wait, but not too hard. I didn't try too hard. No, no, I you were cool. I, I didn't seem to. Okay, good. No, you came out cool. Good. Nothing is cooler than than uh, doing a podcast about weird fiction. We all know that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll be back next week with uh, some French horror stories. And until then, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. Ah!